All right, well, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 17. It's on page 555, if you are uh, following along on the Pew Bibles in front of you. Well, you may have heard the story of two sisters who were sitting down for tea. They were meeting in the home of the younger sister. She lived out in the country. Uh, She was married to a peasant farmer. Uh, They were in her home, and the older sister was visiting from town, and she was married to a businessman in the city. They had a very comfortable life in the city, and the older sister was talking about her life in the city and how how she had all these things, and she was kind of boasting about uh, all the, the comforts and all the pleasures of life in the city. And the younger sister kind of, you know, got a little defensive and said, well, we're, you know, we like our life here uh, on the farm. It's not really so bad. And, uh, you know, we work hard, uh, but we, we don't have to bow down to anyone else, and we don't have to deal with all the temptations that you have to deal with with life in the city. In the meantime, her husband, uh, the, the husband of the, the peasant farmer, uh, wife. He was, he was in the other room overhearing the conversation, and he said, he was agreeing with his wife, yeah, we, you know, we, we work hard. It's true. We've been, all we do is, is kind of till the earth, and, and we work hard. We don't have time to deal with all the nonsense that, that the people deal with in the city. But he said, our only trouble is that we haven't land enough. He said, if I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. Well, in the meantime, the devil overheard him say this, and the devil said to himself, we will have a tussle. I'll give you land enough, and by means of that land, I will get you into my power. So this man sets off on a quest, a quest for more land. But as you can imagine, the quest isn't really about gaining more land. It's a quest for independence, a quest for power, a quest for satisfaction and significance and purpose in his life. And we've been following a similar quest in the book of Ecclesiastes. A quest by Koheleth. He is introduced to us in the first chapter. He's introduced as the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And he had it all. He had riches. He had all the things that he could want. He had land. He had servants. He had the best food, the best entertainment, anything he wanted at any time. Yet we see this refrain over and over in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Chasing after the wind. He paints a picture for us of life under the sun. And he asks us, this is in the first chapter, he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These questions that he's asking, these existential questions, they're questions that confront all humans at all times, everywhere, throughout all time, throughout all history. I think we find ourselves today wrestling with similar questions in our age. Is the rat race really worth it? Is there really anything to gain for all of our toil? Is a bigger house or a fancier car really going to make me happy? And if I can't take it with me, what's the point? 
We find ourselves in a fallen world often operating from an under-the-sun mentality, feeling trapped in what feels like an endless cycle, a never-ending cycle on this quest for more. Yet we all know from personal experience that more is never enough, right? It's never enough. We always want more, no matter how much we gain. But what if there's a different approach An above-the-sun approach to thinking about these questions. An approach that turns this whole idea of gaining on its head. What if the way to gain is really to lose? That's the question we're going to consider. So we're going to journey, continue our journey with Koheleth here. There's two things that I want us to pay attention to and, and point out to you. The first is, this week and next week, uh, really this whole section of uh, verse chapter, sorry, chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 12. This is kind of all one section. We're going to break it up into two parts. So Danny Heinemann with RUF, uh, he's been here before. He's going to be here next week preaching and sharing with us. Um, so I'm taking chapter 5, verses 8 through 17, and this is kind of the, kind of the negative uh, section. Uh, it's the kind of the problem, and really there's not much good in here. There's not much positive in this, this section. Uh, Danny, preaching next week, will it'll be a continuation of the problem that Koheleth is, is wrestling with, but there's a little glimmer of hope uh, in, in what he's sharing, but mine is, is mostly uh, the negative section of, of this passage. So that's kind of first thing. Second thing is uh, just kind of a how we're approaching this. Um, Zach Eswine, in his book, Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes, if you're, I know I mentioned before, David Gibson's book, Reading Life Back, or Living Life Backward, uh, Reading Life Backward, that'd be interesting. Um, Living Life Backward, we had a few copies of that. Uh, great book. Zach Eswine's book, uh, The Gospel According, Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes, it's part of that Old Testament series, The Gospel According to the Old Testament, when we were going through Genesis, I recommended some of those books. Um, fantastic book. Eswine is a, is a really uh, engaging author. In his book on Ecclesiastes, which I would highly recommend if you're wanting to dig in a little bit more to Ecclesiastes, um, it's not a super technical book. It's, it's kind of just, um, yeah, very accessible, uh, which is good for people like me. So, um, Analysis, his analysis of chapter 5, 1 through 7, and then transition. So Dan talked about that last week. Koheleth goes to church. Uh, he's going into the house of God and kind of getting a right perspective on things. Eswine, the way he sets it up, he says, um, the transition from 5, 7 to, to 5, 8 and beyond is as if Koheleth takes us from the house of God out onto the front steps and gives us a set of binoculars so that we can look out into the world and see and analyze and understand the things that are going on in the world kind of from the front steps of the church, if you will. So uh, that was kind of a really helpful thing to think about as we are going into these next sections that are maybe hard to understand or he's wrestling through these difficult questions. So we'll get into that a little bit more um, But let's do that then. Let's go to the front steps of the church and let's see what God has to tell us. This is Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 17. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. 
For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes, that we might see wondrous things out of your word. Lord, we ask that you would teach us and that you would change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to be looking at is the harsh reality of power. This is in verses 8 and 9. Koheleth begins here by pointing his readers to the harsh reality of the struggle for power that exists under the sun. It talks about the poor being oppressed, about justice and righteousness being violated. And then he says, do not be amazed. Do not be amazed at the matter. And then what follows that, there's a couple different ways that we could interpret the second half of verse 8 and verse 9. If you look down if you're using the ESV, if you look at the footnote at the end of verse 9, it says the Hebrew meaning of the verse is uncertain. Uh, so there are some instances, in the, several instances in the Old Testament where uh, we're just kind of not really sure what the Hebrew words mean. Uh, there's, Hebrew is a little, it's older obviously uh, than Greek, and there's a lot more words that are used in the Hebrew Bible, and there's some just some you know, strange words and concepts that we're not really sure what they mean. And so this is one of those verses that scholars are kind of just like, we're not really exactly sure what this means. Uh, There's a couple different options for how to translate it. And uh, the first one is kind of what the ESV does here. It's a little bit more positive. Um, Saying the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And then it talks about the king being committed to cultivated fields. So this is kind of the the view that there is an accountability structure and ultimately over all of it there is a good king who is committed to gain for the people, gain for the land. He is about cultivated fields and everyone gains from that. So that's that's one approach. The second option is is more of a negative approach and this is one of the options for how to translate it too. And this one kind of is based on a, a few different things. The word... For watched, uh, to say that, that one official is, is watched by a higher, um, there could be some, some irony or maybe some sarcasm here in this, saying uh, really what, what is going on, it just means that they're watching each other's backs. 
the officials are watching the backs of, of those above them and, and vice versa, and they're all just kind of in it together. Everybody's watching uh, each other's backs. I think the New Living Translation brings this idea out pretty well, and this is the New Living Translation is a little bit looser of a translation, um, but this is what the New Living Translation says for verses 8 and 9. It says, Every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. So that's kind of the second option. And I'm not going to say which one, you know, is, is better uh, or worse. I think they both could work. But I think world history probably testifies to the second one being most true, right? That's the thing that we see the most in the world. And Kohelis advice to us is do not be amazed. Do not be amazed at this. He's not saying, hey, this is the way it is. This is the, just get over it. Suck it up and deal with it, right? He's saying this is the way the world is, but trust God. Trust him in the process. Trust him when there is oppression. Trust him when justice and righteousness are not being carried out. And we saw this several weeks ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Remember it said, Kohelis said, in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. In the place of justice, there was wickedness. Then in chapter 4, he talked about the oppression of the poor. But his conclusion in 3.17 was, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He saw, he believed, he had faith in God that God would judge the righteous and the wicked. So despite everything that was going on, despite all the injustice, he had trust that God was a just judge. So here, when he's saying, do not be amazed, I think he's saying that same thing. Do not be amazed because God will judge. God will have his say. Do not despair because injustice and unrighteousness are not the end of the story. I love Psalm 73. Uh, Psalm 73 speaks to this issue. And if you've read Psalm 73 and, and, and meditated on this, this this has probably stuck out to you. It's one of those psalms that really just hits you when you read it. The psalmist begins Psalm 73 saying, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's saying, that, that was, verse was a little bit later. He's, he's looking out and he's saying, all these people, all the, the people who are not walking with the Lord around me, they are prospering. What's going on? And he's saying, looking at his own life, in vain have I, have I kept my hands clean. Why, why should I live uprightly? I look around me and all the wicked are prospering. They're not walking with God. And here I am trying to be faithful to the Lord and I just have this life that seems terrible. That's, so it's a very weighty, that first half of that psalm is, is very weighty. And I think we, when we look out at the world, I think we feel that, right? We see that. We see that kind of dichotomy. But there's an amazing turning point in Psalm 73, and it comes right about in the middle in verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I can't understand this. This is wearisome for me. And this word, this Hebrew word the psalmist uses for wearisome is the same word that's used over 20 times in Ecclesiastes. It's the word for toil, 
So this, this wearisome, this, this toil, this wearisomeness and this toil are what happen when we try to understand this. And then here's, again, this is part of this turning point. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So until he goes into the sanctuary of God, just like Koheleth in chapter 5, going into the house of the Lord, the psalmist goes into the sanctuary of God, and then he sees clearly. Then he discerned their end. Just like Koheleth said, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. The psalmist is saying, once I see, once I get a right perspective by going into the sanctuary of God, I understand these things. Well, where are we in our lives feeling the wearisome task of trying to understand this? Trying to understand, God, why do the wicked prosper? Or understanding the corruption of power that we might see in government or that we might see in the workplace. Maybe it's corporately. You know, we all probably feel this corporately at some level. It feels too wearisome to try to understand or to try to change things around us, right? On these big macro levels. How do we change whether it's, you know, powerful corporations who are, who are doing things that are unethical or whether it's corrupt government. Or maybe it's individually. Maybe you've been oppressed or mistreated. And you might ask yourself, how could a just God allow this to happen to me? If God is good, if God is for me, why are these things happening in my life? Well, I can't give you the answer for why those things might be happening in your life. But I can tell you where to go to find the answer or to find insight to how to understand, to begin to understand. And it's in Psalm 73. It's at the end of Psalm 73. Psalm closes with this verse. Psalmist says, But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I have gone into the sanctuary of God. I have taken refuge in the Lord. When everything around me seems to be crashing in, when the world around me doesn't make sense, I take refuge in the Lord. And that's all I can tell you. <laughs> I can't give you the reasons why God is, is doing certain things in your life. I can't give you the reasons for, for the struggles, for the suffering that you have in your life. But I can tell you that if you go to him, if you take refuge in him, if you get that right perspective from inside his sanctuary, then you will be able to see with new eyes and understand and this is what is needed for us to get through the book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's 12 chapters of, of pretty tough sledding. And then as we've been reminded, we get to the end and, and we kind of know what the answer is. And this is also what we need to get through the realities of life under the sun in this world. Next, Koheleth is going to tell us about two kinds of people and their search for satisfaction under the sun. Verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. I'd encourage you to go Google the phrase, money can't buy happiness, and see what comes up. The whole first page, all the, pretty much all the results, 
It's all about research studies that have been done. Professional researchers, research study after research study, showing and proving that money can't buy happiness. As if we need to pay people to tell us that, right? As if people need to spend their time and money doing research to prove, right, that money can't buy happiness. This is what Koheleth is telling us so plainly here. This is what scripture attests to over and over You can't find your satisfaction in your wealth. You can't find your satisfaction in your possessions. We've all heard the phrase, more money, more problems, right? This is what Koheleth describes to us in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Whether it's entertainers or athletes we've probably all heard these stories right someone signs a new a big deal and a big music contract or a big you know a big sports contract and you know thankfully there are some good stories right we hear the good stories once in a while you have someone who made a promise to their parents when they were young that I'm gonna I'm gonna make it and I'm gonna buy you a house right and that's, that's encouraging to see those things. I'm sure there's plenty of problems that come with that. But there are some encouraging stories that we read like that. But for every, every positive story like that, there's hundreds of negative stories, right? There's hundreds of horror stories. Like the third cousin who you haven't seen since kindergarten who calls you up all of a sudden and says, Hey, you got money now? You know, I need a new car. Uh, you know, and... Yeah, I'm, you know, you got the loot now, so I'm not going to drive a Buick. You know, I need a Benz, right? So, and that's just those people kind of start to come out of the woodwork. More money, more problems, right? Or go read stories about people who win the lottery, right? All this money and all of a sudden everybody comes knocking, right? Everybody wants a piece of the pie. And how many of those people, you know, you see it over and over. After a few years, it's all gone and they're bankrupt, Right? Money does not solve all of our problems. It often creates more. So if money can't buy happiness and satisfaction, where can we find happiness and satisfaction under the sun? What is the point in all this toiling? Koheleth in verse 12 contrasts two types of people. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I love the first half of this verse. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. It reminds me of Psalm 127 and an amazing truth that I think we see there. Probably familiar with this psalm and the, the language in this psalm is very similar to the language in Ecclesiastes. The psalmist writes, unless the Lord builds the house Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Brothers and sisters, how are we doing at living this out? Is our labor in vain? Or is the Lord building the house? Are we staying awake in vain? Or is the Lord watching over the city? 
Are we rising early and going late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil? Or are we getting sweet sleep, sweet rest from the Lord? Or in Kohelis' words, are we sleeping sweetly no matter how much we've eaten? Or are we lying awake with full stomachs, full pockets, and empty souls? It's not a plea for everyone to just ditch your, your jobs that you have, maybe white-collar job, working, you know, doing something, not really toiling so much with your hands. It's not a, a plea to, to leave that work and just go out and work in the field, sweat it out, grind it out, and earn a good, honest paycheck working the land. That's not what I'm talking about. And it's also not a condemnation of all wealth. We're going to see this in the, the rest of this, uh, rest of chapter 5 and going into chapter 6. Danny will be touching on this next week. Wealth and possessions can be good gifts from God. They can be things that we can use for his glory. We can use to encourage and bless other people. So this is not a condemnation of all wealth and possessions. But it is a question for all of us to consider. Are we satisfied in the Lord? Are we trusting in him to provide for our needs? Or are we looking to our wealth and our possessions instead of him? These questions, these, these deep questions, they expose, they often expose our vanity. They expose the things that we are seeking after. And in this final section, Koheleth paints an even grimmer picture of the vanity of riches. In verses 13 to 17, he points out two grievous evils that he has seen under the sun. The first one in verse 13 and 14 talks about losing riches in a bad venture and having nothing in his hand to leave to his son. He's saying that it's foolish to labor and to toil and to lose it all and to have nothing to give to the next generation. He's, also, he's already talked about these things in chapter 2 and chapter 4. Basically, you know, you, you, you work, you gain all this stuff, and you don't even know who it's going to go to. Maybe it's going to go to your son, and he's going to squander it. Maybe it's going to go to someone else who's going to get your inheritance. So why toil if, if that's going to be the outcome? And he kind of is following up on that a little bit here. Why toil if you have nothing to give uh, to your son? Well, I want to ask the question, what does the next generation really need from us? What should we really be passing on to the next generation? What kind of inheritance should we be passing on to them? I think first and foremost, it should be a spiritual inheritance. You know, we aren't all in a position to give our children a great financial inheritance, and that's, that's okay. What are we leaving? What kind of legacy are we leaving spiritually? Parents, I want to encourage you in this. Don't leave your children spiritually empty-handed. Pray with them and pray for them. Teach them God's word. Walk with God in front of them. Let them see what it, what it is like to live the Christian life. Confess your sins to them. When you sin against them, confess your sins to them and ask for forgiveness. You can ask my kids. I have plenty of experience doing that. And as a congregation, uh, if you're not a parent, this also still applies to you. As if you have been here when we've done a baptism uh, for one of our little ones, we have a question that we ask the congregation. We have 
vows that the, the parents take, and then we have vows for the congregation. And the question for the congregation is, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? And if you have raised your hand and said yes to that, then this applies to you too. We're all in this together. We're all a part of nourishing and giving guidance, spiritual guidance to the next generation. That is a great task that God has entrusted to us. And I know parents, again speaking to parents, I know that parenting can be hard. I know there are many demands. There are physical demands. There are material demands. Food, clothing, diapers, right? School supplies, braces, college tuition. But those are things that are all temporary. Some of them are necessary, but those are under the sun needs, under the sun necessities or desires. And Koheleth does something interesting here as we think about this. He challenges us to think about and to remember our birthday. Now none of us were none of us are able to remember <laughs> our own birthday, but if you've witnessed the birth of a child, then you have seen this. And this is the second grievous evil in verses 15 to 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The book of Job, in the first chapter, when Job loses everything, he loses his wealth and possessions, he loses his children. At the end of the chapter, he falls to the ground and he worships God. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We say this over and over, right? You can't take it with you, right? And we we all know that it's true. We know all the wealth, all the possessions that we have, that we can't take them with us. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and reminds him of this truth. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Paul tells Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, these pangs are what Koheleth describes in verse 17. And it is a dark picture. It's a picture of loneliness. It's a picture of emptiness of great loss and discontentment. Verse 17, he says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. This is a very opposite picture of what Paul talked about, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, do you remember our story from the beginning? The man who, if he just had 
a little bit more land, wouldn't fear the devil himself. The man's name is Payam, and he's the main character in Leo Tolstoy's story, short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? If you haven't read the story, I would encourage you, you can, you can read it online. Uh, I'm going to ruin the story for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the ending, but you should still go and read it anyways. <laughs> well, the story continues. He makes the, the, the devil kind of makes the deal. And Pahum goes out and he, he goes to search out for more land. And he, he continues to, to kind of work his way up to move his family to bigger and better land, bigger and better properties, bigger and better farms, until finally one day he gets the opportunity of a lifetime. A friend comes to him and he says, hey, there's this group of people that live out in this area far away and they kind of, they just live in tents and they just kind of roam around. They don't really care about the land. They, you, they're, they're letting people come and buy as much land as they want to. So he takes a journey out there, and, and through a translator, he's talking to them and finds out what the deal is. Basically, for a, a pretty small sum of money, uh, he, can, he can get as much land as he wants. But there's one condition. He has to make his route from sunup until sundown. He needs to get back to, to where he started by sundown, and he, can, he goes around to stake out this land. So he starts off early in the morning right after sunrise, walks about a thousand meters, digs his first hole, stakes out that, it out, stakes it out there, and then keeps going. He keeps going farther and farther until he can see the people. They're kind of up on a hill in the distance, and he's down in the valley, and they're getting pretty far away, and he's thinking, okay, it's probably time that I turn around. I've, you know, maybe I've walked a little too far, and I'm, I'm being a little, you know, a little um, overzealous, and so he starts to turn all of a sudden, you know, sun is, is overhead and it's really beating down on him. He's, he's running out of water. He takes his feet off. He's walking barefoot. His feet are blistered. And as he keeps going, time is kind of running out. And he's a little bit worried that he's not going to make it back in time and that he's just squandered this opportunity. As he's getting closer, he, he thinks that he's not going to make it. And he shouts out, all my labor has been in vain What do you think Tolstoy maybe was familiar with Ecclesiastes? Finally, he makes it back just before sunset. He reaches out, falls down, and touches the cap. He needed to get back to the cap where he had set his money. He makes it back, and he touches the cap. And this is how the story ends. Ah, what a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief. He has gained much land. Payam's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Payam was dead. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Payam to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. This is a very sobering story. And I think Tolstoy really gets at the heart of this idea of the quest for more. Well, there's another story that you've probably heard about the devil trying to tempt someone with a large piece of land. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, 
Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is the kind of discipleship that we are called to as Jesus' followers. To worship and serve God alone. And this is where our quest for meaning and purpose in this life begins to make sense. But there is a little bit more to the equation than that. Near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus began to tell his disciples about his death and resurrection. Jesus called the crowd to him. He called his disciples to him. And this is what he said to them. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Money and wealth and possessions cannot buy happiness. It cannot buy comfort. It cannot buy satisfaction in this life. And no matter how much stuff you acquire, you cannot give it in exchange for your soul. Brothers and sisters, the encouragement for us from the gospel is to lose your life by surrendering it to the one who lost his life so that you might live. The one who bore your sins on that cross so that you might be clothed in his righteousness. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. The one who could have had all the kingdoms of the world for all the wrong reasons. But instead he remained faithful to God and he showed us a better way. And he showed us an everlasting kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that no money can buy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have sent your son to live for us, to die for us, that he overcame the temptation of the devil to fall down and worship him, to gain land, to gain kingdoms and glory by unjust means, that he showed us a better way, that he showed us faithfulness to you, and that he calls us to take up our crosses, to die to ourselves, to live for you. Lord, give us the strength to follow in Christ's footsteps, to follow as his disciples, and to go out and make disciples in the world, to tell others about the good news of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.